Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the June 2023 edition of State of Distressed Debt, part of the Fick Focus podcast series where we focus on the U.S. Stressed, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. I am your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me to explore the state of play are litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku and senior distressed analyst Bill Brindell of Bloomberg Intelligence. In addition, super happy to bring you Nagisa and Phil's conversation with Matt Cantor. He's a senior managing director over at uh, Pretium Partners, and they focus on their fascinating, if somewhat niche, world of litigation finance. So, very informative conversation for me as well. But first, let's start in a familiar place with you, Phil. Uh, you know, the month of May was kind of an odd one. High yields had a bit of a mixed bag. We saw the, the Bloomberg U.S. Corporate High Yield Bond Index lower. Uh, that was largely the Treasury dynamic. You had the debt ceiling overhang. You had a slightly hawkish Fed. A lot of things that have seemed to either have been reversed or resolved since. Uh, what happened and, and what are you looking for at this point in time uh, from uh, distressed? Thanks, Noel. Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I continue to lean heavily on seasonals and formulating my short to medium term outlook. Uh, and the seasonals lined up perfectly for the first uh, four months of the year. Uh, finally, May, there was a divergence. Uh, you know, on average, May is a positive month. Uh, but it was down 0.6% in May. That, that's the uh, ICE distress index. Um, the distress ratio fell a, a smidge in May from 9.3% to 9.1%. So, you know, this kind of played out just as we expected. We knew fundamentals sort of looked like uh, credit might widen, uh, but for, for, but Higher rates haven't like done that through the first five months of the year. Uh, credit kind of held in. Um, and now is when I get really bearish. So the next six months on average uh, over the past 26 years, it's, it, it's a loss of 6.3%. Um, you know, that's including a hefty distress index coupon. Um, so I am, uh, I, I think we're going to, you know, maybe reach that 24% sort of lower band of uh, peaks that we see in distress cycles. Uh, right now, we're at 9.1%. That would be a pretty ugly summer if if that played out. Um, so that's that's how I'm thinking kind of about it. I picture you growling right now and maybe catching some uh, salmon in the river or something. I guess uh, you're, you're kind of grizzly-like bearish here. I mean, that's that's quite a big move from where we are today. I mean, it's funny because, I mean, high yield sort of the same animal right now, right? I, I've been sort of bearish for some time now, but it's, you know, spreads have just been really sticky and the market stayed very bifurcated where you've got like your true, true distress names that sort of don't really catch a bid or they file for bankruptcy, one of the two, because we've had plenty of those lately. Uh, but everything else very, very well behaved. Is there is there something that you're looking for to maybe catalyze that? Because it seems like the market's a little bit asleep right now. I agree. You have the greatest dislocations when you have that sort of calmness and people are thinking nothing's going to happen. The, you know, it, and uh, what I see is uh, so, so I have this strong allegiance 
because it's been right to this sort of technical seasonal uh, nature of the, the credit markets and distressed market in particular. Um, but then you're also seeing trouble in the fundamental way. Uh, you're seeing now the crackdown on crypto behemoths is, you know, that that always causes some friction, you know, among the banks and that sort of thing. And the, the, we've, we're already in the midst of a, uh, of a banking crisis. Uh, you know, regional banks are going to be pulling back. You've heard a lot about commercial real estate on our podcast and, you know, just in the marketplace. And then, you know, even Nagisa and I had the pleasure of going to the ABI New York City uh, conference, and you could hear the bankruptcy judges talking about how they're seeing, you know, increasing uh, violence. Um, and ABI being the American Bankruptcy Institute? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So. I like to try to avoid the acronyms where we can, but I mean, one of the things, and maybe bringing Nagisa in prematurely into the conversation here, typically we wait to get all of her deep learnings uh, after the, the conversation, but one of the things I've been hearing about is is sort of the bankruptcy pickup. Uh, you know, part of what's driving that these days is the fact that, you know, you've got these higher rates, so obviously out-of-court restructurings get a little bit more difficult to come by because you can't, you know, when rates are at like zero <laughs> or whatever else, you can find funding somewhere. Um, one, do you think that's sort of a, a, a good view or a legitimate view? And then secondarily, do you see that playing out in sort of how things are, are sort of happening in the courts right now? So it does seem that uh, there is a lot more movement in the courts, um, particularly in Texas, as we've seen lately. Um, it, it it also it does appear that there's not a rush towards uh out of court proceedings. Uh I think what we've also seen is bankruptcy courts, particularly I think we're gonna talk a bit later on this up to transactions taking over from state courts and in, in dealing with some of those issues, which is very interesting because some of these problems are seem to start out outside of bankruptcy and then end up in bankruptcy. So we're seeing uh the bankruptcy courts taking a much more active uh, position in some of these issues. We've seen that in tort also. So we're seeing bankruptcy courts um, a lot more involved in issues that would otherwise tend to get resolved out of it. So that's, I think, been interesting. And Phil, for you, do you kind of get the sense that right now bankruptcy seems to be a more popular path in part because of rates, or do you think it's has nothing to do with it? I think, well, I think what we're seeing is all of these out-of-court restructurings that were really just kind of uh, putting lipstick on a pig, to borrow expression from the 90s. Um, <laughs> that, that's... Uh, well, we're all old enough to appreciate it. So yeah, no, yeah. I, you know, they, 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 they didn't cut the debt uh, deep enough. Uh, you know, I think we had uh, Bill Darrow on our podcast last year, and he was talking about, uh, you know, liposuction and, you know, like how much debt are you going to take off? Is it just a little bit or is it a lot? Um, in this case, I think what we're finding out is that all these distressed exchange offers just didn't cut the mustard and, you know, that you really need to uh, get more debt culled off of these companies given this interest rate environment. And honestly, the uh, economic and credit spread environment, which just, uh, you know, con consistently we're seeing uh, these backstop financings, you know, for the exit financing, uh, it's not necessarily going to be competitive with uh, the syndicate. You know, the syndicated loan market isn't going to try and beat it. Uh, and, I, I, you know, to just to, uh, one little add on, 
you know, there's even news stories about Malincrot, which just came out of bankruptcy, and now they're discussing it again. And that's, you know, that's that's a sign that even when you go through a bankruptcy, maybe you're not getting rid of enough debt. Interesting. Yeah, and I think they process now is cool sculpting, not liposuction. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what the difference is between the two, but it's that's the one that has all the billboards. I'll lean anyway. on you for the, those kind of procedures. <laughs> all right. So that that seems like a pretty good point to to maybe pivot now to our conversation uh, that Nagisa, you and Phil were able to have uh, a little bit earlier with Matt. So let's let's go to that. Hi, everyone. Today in this June edition of State of Distressed Debt podcast, Phil and I are very happy to have here Matt Cantor. Matt is the head of legal strategies and special situations at Pretium. He joined Pretium, which is a specialized investment firm in 2020 with over 20 years of experience in corporate restructuring. Prior to joining Pretium, Matt ran Lehman Brothers' legal strategy in connection with the liquidation of its assets and business since its emergence from the bank from bankruptcy. He was also a founding principal at a distressed credit fund and was a bankruptcy partner at major law firms. Matt, thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So we'll have a wide discussion on distressed topics today. But first, let's start by talking about litigation finance, which is an asset class that we actually haven't discussed in this podcast before. And I think it will be fascinating to explore it, particularly through the lens of bankruptcy. Um, so perhaps let's start by you walking us through what Pretium does and where does this trust sit within your overall investment platform. Okay, great. Thanks. And again, it's a pleasure to be here. It's nice to see you both. Um, so Pretium is an alternative asset manager with over $50 billion of assets under management. Um, and, and we have our operating companies and our portfolio companies employ over 4,500 employees globally, including 100 investment professionals um, with an average of 20 years of investment experience um, and six litigation um, finance experts. And, you know, my team, we have an average of 25 years of experience um, among the folks on the team. So it's an investment professionals with an awful lot of experience in the asset stripes that we focus on. and we established the legal opportunity strategy, which I'm the head of, in June of uh, 2021. And again, um, as you mentioned, I have a, a fair bit of experience as a, as a bankruptcy and organizations attorney at two major firms. I had a distressed fund. Um, I spent the better part of the last eight years winding down the Lehman estate uh, post-bankruptcy, which was effectively one of the largest litigation um, portfolios that I don't think anybody's ever seen. It was, you know, we had about $150 billion to $200 billion of um, dollars at risk in litigation and claims resolution and tens of thousands of different items of over, you know, a variety of uh, types of litigation and, and claims resolution. Um, and we have um, professionals on the team who are experts in patent infringement and um, IP. Uh, we have uh, very senior commercial litigators um, who practice at, you know, you know, AMLO 50 firms um, with real expertise in general commercial litigation, anti-competitive uh, price fixing type cases and those sort of things. And, and I fill in the, the rest of the skill set 
with my bankruptcy and reorganization experience and, and, and experience in the distress space. And those are the sort of the three asset categories of litigation finance that we're focusing on. Um, patent infringement and IP related, large corporate on corporate um, litigation uh, with a particular interest in you know anti-competitive pricing and those type of class action cases. And then in and around the bankruptcy and reorganization space. Um, you know, and just 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 to fill it out, you know, Predium was was founded with a focus on um, identifying, you know, complex investment strategies and finding a way to make that accessible to our um, investors, um, building out teams that are experts in, you know, the, the processes in and around these complex trades. Um, so, you know, we build operating and management teams in and around investment um, sort of stripes. And that's what we intend to do in and around litigation finance with our team. So thanks for that time to introduce Predio. Sure, thank you. Uh, so speaking of litigation finance, can you maybe uh, just try to explain what is the role of it generally uh, for those that are new to the field and, and, and more particularly in bankruptcy and maybe how has the use of such funding evolved through the years? Uh, and maybe you could also touch upon uh, changes to the bankruptcy process that have maybe opened the door to litigation finance. For example, I, I could think, does, does the fact that companies are emerging for bankruptcy at a faster pace, for example, I'd imagine they would encourage parties to look towards litigation finance to monetize assets in litigation trusts. That's probably a more classic way of using litigation finance in, in the space. So if you could help us sort of give us an overview on that. Thanks. I'll do my best, and if I if I missed anything, you'll you'll remind me. But you know, high level, right? Uh, litigation finance is a product that enables plaintiffs, generally, who wouldn't otherwise have the liquidity to hire the best lawyers to pursue their claims, um, to find financing or capital to support that process and monetize whatever claims um, that they might have, right? And it. Um, there's all different kinds of litigation finance, um, like a, there's the litigation finance that we focus on, which is large corporate and commercial litigation. But there's also litigation finance um, that's almost like a consumer, subprime consumer finance space where uh, financiers are, are financing multiples, many, many personal injury type cases, personal injury lawyers. There's litigation finance for mass tort lawyers to pursue uh, you know, mass tort claims. Um, there's litigation finance for appeals. You know, you, you know, plaintiff has has won the case at trial, and appeals taken. There's a judgment entered with an amount due, and there's litigation finance available. And it's most that's like a, a factoring type of thing where you're you're sort of litigation finance parties underwriting the risk of reversal and appeal and 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 advancing money against that judgment. Um, again, it's it's um I can go on there there are lots of different types of litigation finance, but fundamentally it's liquidity to pursue the monetization of a legal claim um, that ordinarily requires paying legal fees to lawyers and and other costs like expert costs in the context of litigation. Um, it's also there uh, for law firms who pursue opportunities in, through alternative funding arrangements or contingency fee arrangements. They have a client, the law firm likes the risk, is willing to work um, 
for a piece of the outcome rather than get paid running. Um, and the law firm sort of captures that opportunity through an engagement letter. They need to finance some portion of that risk to pay, you know, assistance, rent, associates, all the costs of doing business as a law firm. Um, so litigation finance arrives there, financing the law firm, helping the law firm uh, meet its uh, cash needs, while at the same time enabling some capture some of the risk and then sharing some of the risk. So we're able to do that too. Um, and you let me know if I'm going on too long, but you know, large law firms, which had not traditionally um, done a whole lot of business on risk or through alternative fee arrangements, are finding that um, taking those opportunities on risk in cases that they like is enabling them to increase their realization rates, you know, get away from the hourly billing model and maybe increase the amount per hour that they end up booking. And um, so, you know, law firm uh, management is increasingly looking towards alternative fee arrangements and looking to litigation finance parties like us to help bear some of the risk and help with the liquidity of the firm. So hopefully that gave you a, a sense of the, you know, the lit finance writ large. Yep, Phil? As you go through this and, you know, it's the lawyers are involved, the plaintiffs involved and the funders involved, how important is it to have skin in the game along that along the path there and you know and also are there are there risks that you incur if people don't have risk is skin in the game um so you it's a, it's a good point <clears throat> litigation finance enables real alignment among the lawyers and the client and the finance party uh, typically right if the law firm is on risk for 50, 70, whatever percentage of their legal fees running, <clears throat> they have an economic interest not only in getting the best outcome, but um, not taking too much risk that they, um, uh, too much risk in relation to their perception of the value of the case. Um, clients love this because it, again, aligns their lawyers with their interest, right? If the, um, the lawyers are not interested in running up um, bigger bills uh, for the sake of uh, collecting money. The the goal is to make the case come out as as um, as well as it could um, by allocating the right resources and um, sort of having the, the way litigation finance is structured ordinarily. The cost of the finance, the cost of the of our capital, Predium's capital, increases over time to the plaintiff. So um, as you know, you know you, you file a case against defendant A for $100, right? Um, there's $100 to collect at the end of trial. When you have negotiations along the way to settle those cases, typically the off-ramp for the defendant is less expensive the earlier in the case the defendant can settle the case. Um, right, the longer the plaintiff wants to go, the more they want to collect, the more it costs them for their, for their capital. So it, it, you know, it puts some um, economic uh, constraints on, you know, plaintiff's interest in running the case out of the trial, lawyer's interest in not suggesting that the case settle. So I mean, it, it, it keeps everybody aligned is the short answer. So it's, I think it's a valuable addition to the litigation process. Can we maybe talk a little bit how we can how litigation finance can be used in the bankruptcy space by different stakeholders? I means obviously the debtor, the creditors, but also 
perhaps uh, equity holders also, just how these different entities uh, could use it and um, where you're seeing it more and how you're seeing that evolve. Yeah, and so you made a good point. Um, there's different ways that litigation finance can be employed. Um, over the last, you know, 30 years that I've been in and around reorganization and, and, and bankruptcy cases, um, there's been a, a real push over the years to accelerate the time that debtors spend time in bankruptcy and to the expense, to the extent possible, put the resolution of, you know, the estate's litigation claims against, you know, whether they be preference claims, whether they be, you know, claims against directors and officers, whether it's claims against uh, the company, you know, a parent company that spun them off, the spin-off claims. There's all sorts of claims and, and recoverable items that exist in a bankruptcy case. And a lot of them only arise once you've commenced the bankruptcy case. But the practice over the years has been to let's shorten the, the, the length of the bankruptcy cases, let's reduce the administrative burden to the debtor, and let's put those claims in a trust some sort of post-bankruptcy litigation trust and send that off in its way with some money and a, and a trustee or a board or somebody to manage that litigation. And oftentimes it's, a, it's a, a way to sort of ring fence some value for creditors or equity holders, depending on whom, who might not have been in the money during the case. And it's a way to create some capital in the bankruptcy to enable everybody to get on board to support the plan. So that's sort of been a, a growing post, you know, litigation um, finance opportunity. It's been around for m many years. You know, while I was at uh, Lehman, I sat on a couple of trusts and I did that. And there's a whole sort of, there's a whole cottage industry of post-bankruptcy litigation trustees, you know, who are around to do that kind of work. So that's one interesting opportunity for litigation finance to engage in, in connection with bankruptcies. Um, what I see a, a trend um, that I think will grow which is um you know I, th I think i think everybody you know the betting money is that we have a pretty robust distress cycle you know on the horizon um an awful lot of the the um the debtors that we're going to see are going to be um you know growth companies companies that may or may not be cash flow positive haven't um, achieved what the markets thought their ultimate realizable value was and in, in cases like that, and you're seeing some now, um, you know, you have the company enter a bankruptcy case where there's this perceived value beyond the, um, you know, PP&E or um, where, um, let's say, the intangible assets of the company, the, the patent portfolio is the, is the most obvious example, has real value that's not being expressed in the way that debt and equity markets um, are um, pricing the debt and equity securities. And there you may have shareholders whose, you know, equity is trading at, you know, cents on the dollar, um, have a view that they need to be represented in the case in order to protect this sort of value beyond what's reflected in the multiple of the, the company's cash flows. Um, you know, in those cases, there's real resistance to um, enabling an official equity committee or in a case where the unsecured debt is perceived as having no value. And, and um, you know, oftentimes companies that get the bankruptcy case are looking to limit the amount of cash available to pay for lawyers and other experts to represent those parties in the bankruptcy case. Um, and there might be um, unofficial committees that appear. 
Um, there are opportunities for litigation finance to partner with those equity or debt security holders and those law firms to fund the cost of the lawyers and recover um, the litigation finance payback based upon whatever lift there might be in those debt or equity securities. Um, you know, hopefully that makes sense. But I, I see that as, as sort of lift finance and bankruptcy 2.0 after we've, you know, we've seen, you know, a lot of those litigation trusts access litigation finance. Uh, um, and they, and they, you know, bankruptcy cases, you know, finish up every, every day and every week with, you know, more and more lit, lit, um, litigation trusts. Um, I see real opportunities for litigation finance to enable the representation of parties or groups in the cases um, where the court or the debtor may be unwilling to fund that. That's very interesting. Uh, thanks for that. Um, generally speaking, could you help us understand a little bit how you go about evaluating investment opportunities in this distressed space? Uh, what are some specific considerations, for example, when you're seeking opportunities? Do companies come to you? Uh, what are your typical expectations? Uh, how do, basically, how do you decide which company and or law firm to work with? And how does this analysis happen at Pretium and generally speaking? Yeah, um, um, certainly, you know, um, for every investment management team, and it's certainly true in litigation finance, sourcing opportunities is a extremely important part of being successful. Um, because of the relationships that we have among the senior members of the team in and around not only the bankruptcy community, um, the bankers, the turnaround managers and the lawyers, but in you know the patent infringement space with patent infringement consultants and, and, and lawyers that pursue those types of claims, and generally among large law firms and the boutique litigation firms, it's really those relationships that um, generate the opportunities and the thinking on what types of cases to pursue and how to get invested in them. Um, what's interesting about litigation finance is we think about um, underwriting the opportunities. It sets, sets up very much like a distressed opportunity, um, which I spent a bunch of years doing before as a predium. Whereas, you know, when you're doing litigation finance, you're identifying an asset or group of assets, in this case, intangible assets that um, support, um, you know, claims in a litigation. And you can underwrite the value of those claims by doing a legal analysis into the validity of the claims of liability and then conducting a damage analysis. Here at Pretium, um, we have um, one fellow who um, spent his entire career over 30 years as a forensic accountant and a testifying and consulting expert on damages in commercial litigation. He he worked for me when I wound down um, the Downey Bank. He worked for me as an expert in Lehman. He worked as an expert for my commercial litigators. So we have in-house the ability to do the underwriting and just to flex back to where I started. So right, we like distress claims. You can focus on an asset when you do, you know, when you when you're buying a piece of senior security piece of paper. Here we're able to focus on an asset, underwrite it to value. And um we also think a lot about the jurisdiction where the claims are being brought. Um, there's an awful lot of data that you can pull to understand 
what's the duration of a case from beginning to end in any particular jurisdiction? So we're able to underwrite the range of value um, and the tenor, the, how long it's going to take, which is primarily what you need in order to develop a view of what the investment is worth and then, um, you know, figure out how to price it so that you can achieve the kind of multiples um, that you need um, to get. So that's sort of the process. Now, when it comes to litigation, it's, um, I, I often talk about the demographics. It's, it's, you know, when I was at Lehman, it was very interesting. Again, we had tens of thousands of disputes. I can count on one hand the number that went to trial. And there are certain things around every litigation that you can look at to have a really good sense of whether or not it's going to settle and settle fast or whether or not um, or it's going to go to trial. And whether or not, and most importantly, is do you have sophisticated lawyers on both sides of the V? Do you have sophisticated plaintiffs who are economic actors looking just to maximize value? Um, are you dealing with underlying claims with the laws that are fairly um, uh, well set, where there's not a lot of dispute over what the law is? Um, and there's a bunch of other factors, but so you know you can identify which cases are going to settle. The goal of litigation finance from an investor's perspective is to get involved in cases that are obviously going to settle at a reasonable range between a, between you know what reasonable people would consider the bid and the ask. Um, there are certain types of cases um, or you know claims that sort of if you see enough of them, it almost you could you can almost see a market like like. The pricing on where cases settle on similar cases really demonstrate market-like um, characteristics. Again, I saw this at Neiman. We had, you know, 180, 200 mortgage putback claims, right? We, we, we were going back to all the mortgage originators that sold Neiman. You could see after a while, um, those things settle in and around a sort of a, a market value. RBS putback claims, also another thing where you have a tremendous number of widgets where you can begin to see uh, a market center develop and you could also identify characteristics of situations that cause a particular item to be inside or outside of market or not settle at all. Um, so that's a very long answer to tell you. It underwrites very much like a distressed investment in that you, know, you, you, you can get a high level of uh, confidence on a range of values for settlement and for uh, duration um, and you know internally we do all that at, at um, what should i say we do that internally with our team at, at predium we're looking at each case we're going deep into the uh the legal support for the claims and um you know digging into the facts in and around um their pursuit i have one last topic and i want to be mindful of, of, of time here and this could be a very lengthy topic so we'll keep it brief but I'm curious to get your thoughts on the role that litigation finance can play in this much talked about in this podcast also intersection of mass torts and bankruptcy via divisional mergers. Uh, if you have any sort of quick thoughts on that, and then I'll pass it on to Phil. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, I think it's the same role that you might see in any litigation. You have um, the lawyers pursuing or the, the groups of lawyers pursuing the mass tort claims. Um, they look to finance the cost of, of sort of putting that portfolio together. Um, oftentimes, in my mind, it looks, we, and we at Lehman, you know, and we, we at Pradium, we're not investing in other types of cases. Um, again, we're, we're, we're staying primarily focused on, on corporate and corporate. But it's very much of that underwriting is underwriting the ability 
uh, the folks you're lending money to to convert advertising spend into people. And we'll see it not only in the, the, the mass tort cases and sort of these divisional you know, mergers, um, bankruptcies, but you know, there's mass arbitration sort of portfolios being put together. Anytime you're trying to spend money on advertising, for lack of a better term, um, to cobble together as large a group of individuals as you can, it's a little less about the legal issues and it's a little bit more about being uh, adept at, um, um, again, turning advertising dollars into um, worthwhile claims. Not to say that, you know, that the plaintiff's bar is fantastic at pursuing the um, um, claims in court and the practical legal bit, but it, it, the, the funding piece of it is very much about ad spend and conversion of ad spend to people. Okay, I think so. I think you can Thanks. take it from there. Great, thank you. Matt, um, you know, I'm going to kind of dwell on your uh, background at uh, involved in distressed and banking. Uh, you know, it looks like we're right in the midst of a real banking crisis now. Uh, you know, we've seen some of these banks that have failed. They, they, they are comparable to 2007, 2008. And, you know, I think you're probably one of the best people to talk to, given your experience as a distressed investor and working at a bank and you know, uh, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts as as we're kind of in the midst of it here. Yeah, and and Freddie, we're closely you know monitoring the situation as it evolves, right? You know, um, most of the regional banks are are small. The majority of the U.S. population may not even notice uh, a difference here, but the 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 trend will affect you know local communities as as and local home builders and small businesses. Um, so, you know, so, so the financial system needs to use some innovation in order to support local communities because they need these banks. But stepping back to, you know, my experience, you know, certainly um, as um, rates rise, it's not uncommon to see, uh, you know, banks fail. And we're seeing that now um, from a uh, distressed investor's perspective. Right. Um, we what we saw in um the, the great financial crisis, right? And those failed banks, the investment opportunity was in and around the securities, the holding companies. They were right. Holding companies filed the bankruptcy. The operating the, the bank got seized by the FDIC, um, and the, the recoveries in the bankruptcy case were all about, you know, what was going to be the quantum of the FDIC's claim. Um, would it have um, seniority to other general claims in the bankruptcy? Um, and it's been a long time, but there had been some um, thought that Chapter 7 bankruptcies of the holding company enabled the holding company to put the receiverships claims at a, at a lower level. Because, you know, I think it was a 365-0, right, that's a, that's a section. And it's not altogether clear that got sort of picked up appropriately to give the priority in, in a Chapter 7 case. So you had that going on. Um, you had the issue with the fight over the NOL, right? In 08, um, the government had just increased the number of years that companies could look back um, in terms of putting their uh, um, refund claim in on their, on their tax returns. So it generated some pretty massive tax refunds. And it was be a fight over who owns the refund, what's the effect of the tax share agreement. I know since, I don't know, I believe, since the last crisis, um, the FDIC may have cleaned up 
those tax sharing agreements. I haven't seen them, but that's an issue um, to be resolved during the bankruptcy. So, right, so the, the bank holding company bankruptcy is about what's going to be the FDIC's claim, who's going to get to uh, recapture the tax refund. Um, and, um, you know, what, what's interesting is, is look, in the, the last crisis, uh, mortgage underwriting was, was, was much um, less robust and the value of those mortgages really took a steep drop and there was a, a very high default rate. I think that I think the view is that the uh, the mortgages written um, by the banks today, even the ones that got that, that failed, the, the quality of those underlying mortgages were much better than we had in the last crisis. Um, that will go um, to you know the quantum of the FDIC's claims, right? When the FDIC takes over a bank, um, and in these last few bank failures, right, with 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 Silicon and Signature and First Republic, when they Sort of bridge bank it and, and sort of put uh, the old bank with, with with a new operating bank. Uh, they do it through with a loss sharing agreement. The FDIC agrees to uh, absorb some amount of the losses on the on the mortgage portfolio. Um, they usually five to seven year type agreements. It's not altogether clear today what the FDIC's claims are going to be under those loss sharing arrangements, and. Um, It'll be interesting to see how that works out. Sometimes very hard to get visibility into FDIC receiverships. The, the reporting is less frequent and for me a little bit harder to sort of peel in regular way um, financial presentations. I tell you, you know, the First Republic Bank um, sort of insolvency is a little more different than the other ones because there the public debt was issued out of the, the bank. So it ends up being a claim in the receivership rather than in most of the holding, you know, operating holding company bank bankruptcies we see where the, all the public debt and equity was up at the holding company. So, you know, query whether or not those bondholders are going to be able to be participants in the receivership and, and protect their rights to um, recapture whatever they're entitled to out of the receivership. That's going to be a different ballgame than um, most, if not all the other sort of bank um, insolvencies that I, I followed. Matt, I haven't had a whole lot of experience with financial, uh, you know, banks failing and that sort of thing in in my prior experience at a large asset manager. And I'm, you know, so so I'm real curious when it comes to like following, you know, and investing in these bank bankruptcies, um, do you how would you? compare and contrast that with like your normal normal corporate that you know like a manufacturing company going under and like it it seems to me it'd be more volatile and much more probably plays towards your strengths you know in litigation as opposed to uh you know operational turnarounds changing a, a an assembly line or something yeah yeah and that's a that's a that's a, a great observation um um, and what's funny when you said maybe more volatile, I have to think about that, right? So regular way operating company, um, you know, you need you need um, good business analysis, understanding the comps, getting real comfortable with the cash flows you're looking at, applying the appropriate discounts, making the right predictions on how the business is going to go forward and developing a view on value. And then you apply your capital markets um, knowledge to think about, you know, what's going to be the optimal capital structure for this company to come out of the bankruptcy and 
what's the likely capital structure given the um, um, interests of all the various investors and understanding what it is they want to have on their books as the, as the company emerges. Whereas, right, the, 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 the bank, these are, those are pure liquidations. And what your, what your job is, is to let's figure out what the assets are on the left side. Let's get a good view on the right side. And again, there's a bunch of legal risk in underwriting that. Um, you know, you know, the, you start with matching up the core reports against the public company reporting. And usually from that work, you can begin to develop a real good view on what's really on the balance sheet of the bank and the, uh, and the holding company. And, and also identify, you know, what the, what the, uh, unknowns are. And then in most of these situations where you have a, a new bank, right, taking over the old bank, um, they're making statements at the closing of, of that and, uh, statements about, you know, what's, what it's doing to their, you know, realization of equity value at close, what their books look like. So, you know, you triangulate among the coal report and the old companies, public financials and the new companies. And, you know, you can develop a pretty good view. And, and then it becomes a very simple analysis. What are the assets? What are the liabilities? And you divide one by the other and you figure out what the paper should be trading at. But to your point, um, there's real volatility in the, in the legal outcome. But oftentimes, um, and, uh, Many of these things usually trade because nobody really likes liquidations, at least investing in them. And even worse, if a company were to file Chapter 7, there's a whole lot of investors that don't like to touch that. Um, you can get invested in those securities at or near, uh, uh, you know, you know, a certainty level of where the asset value is against the highest possible claims level. Right? There's usually some amount of cash that you know is on the books. Um, it, certainly in the crisis, the, you know, back in 08 and 09, there were a lot of opportunities to invest like that. Um, some of the banks that failed recently, there was a little bit of a run on the, on the debt that drove the pricing up um, that made it hard to capture that sort of high confidence level investment. You know, so you take a little bit more risk in the litigation. Got it. No, that, that, that's fascinating. Um, so I'm going to let you off the hook after you give us your outlook for kind of this distress cycle. How, you know, maybe some of the sectors that you're thinking about are going to provide good opportunities uh, and how it's different from past cycles. And, you know, maybe how long are we going to be suffering it? Any of those questions that you think you might have an answer to, because none of us really have a crystal ball. Um, we'd appreciate hearing you. Yeah, thanks, and and I appreciate. It. I don't have a crystal ball. It, it is hard to predict how long it's going to last, but I think um, you know if you if you look at the data and you look at sort of the prognostications of the smart people, there's a very high confidence level that you know we're going to be seeing some sort of recession, um, you know, within the next year. Um, I think um, a couple of things that we're focusing on. Again, I think um, that I'm that if you look at the composition of S&P 500 balance sheets today against whether you look back 25 years or 50 years, there's one thing that stands out. Um, the preponderance of assets on S&P 500 balance sheets 25, 50 years ago were tangible assets, intangible assets, made a very small part of that. Today, over, I think, 80%. Maybe 85% of S&P 500 assets are intangibles. Um, and look, there's a lot of noise in intangible accounting, but in that is 
knowledge assets like patents, like trade secrets, like value that was invested in in um, network value, human resources. There's, there's a whole bunch of um, value embedded in corporate balance sheets that are not expressed in tangible assets. And those intangibles demonstrate very different things. It is a reflection of the move of our world economy from an industrial economy to a digital economy. One of the things that I see from a litigation funding perspective and a distressed investing perspective is, is that much of that intangible asset value will need to be monetized through use of the legal process, paying lawyers, and it's creating a growing opportunity for litigation finance. You know, it's adjacent to what I mentioned before with these growth companies with perceived value that's not reflected in PPE or multiples of cash flow in order to be accessed. It's going to be a real dispute um, with others in the capital structure to, to capture those rights to live another day to, to experience that. So um, one area I see real opportunity um, uh, for investors, those investors can get really smart about understanding where there is value in intangible assets and how to achieve that. Um, is going to be um, a characteristic in the next cycle we've not, not a scene in prior cycles. Um, the other one that we were just chatting about this morning, and because it, it should have been obvious, um, you know, industrials in the business of, of making internal combustion engines and parts in, around internal combustion engines, probably the, the, um, the horizon for maturities that investors can be able to look at um, is going to is going to come in, you know, with this massive push to EV and away from internal combustion. Um, you know, one popped on my screen today along coming to market. Um, there's going to be some less appetite from the capital markets to go um, way out there on the time horizon on on those types of businesses because you probably expect some real um, contraction there. Well, that's great. Um, I I really appreciate the the time you took with Nagisa and I, um, it's been enlightening. And uh, I, I want to just thank you very much for your time and uh, for participating in our podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, and thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's always fun. Nice to meet you both. All right, fantastic. And we'd like to thank uh, Matt Cantor once again for joining us on the State of Distress podcast. But let's now pivot into uh, some of the situations that we're on top of here, and let's spring, no pun intended, first into Serta, or maybe they're more of a memory foam kind of company now. But Nagisa, what's the situation that we have over there on, on the mattress universe? So Judd Jones in Texas confirmed Serta's Chapter 11 plan in a written opinion that was issued on June 6th that followed a multi-day trial that concluded in May. Uh, Insert of the issues surrounding its 2020 transaction, which was referred to often as an up-tier transaction, though Judge Jones preferred calling it a position enhancement transaction, uh, remained intertwined sort of the Chapter 11 plan throughout until the very last day of confirmation. Really brief, briefly, what's an up-to transaction? It generally involves the issuance of new debt secured by a priming lien on the borrower's assets with the existing debt of the participating lender's purchase discount with a portion of the proceeds. So the effect of it is to remove 
the borrower's more valuable assets from the non-participating lender's collateral until the participating lenders are paid in full. Um, in 2020, CERDA uh, launched the transaction, resulting in some, though not all, of its existing lenders providing new priming loans and exchanging some of their existing loans for new priority debt. Um, it was uh, Apollo, Angela Gordon, and other lenders that were left out of the transaction uh, were ultimately subordinated and then commenced litigation. Uh, that litigation ended up going to in front of Judge Jones in Texas um, after fall, after the New York State Court. Um, the 2020, the 2016 credit agreement in question was what permitted the debtors to repurchase their debt from the lenders on a non-parata basis through either uh, a Dutch auction open to all lenders or through this open market purchase involving fewer than all lenders. Um, according to Judge Jones, it all came down to the meaning of what an open market purchase was. It generally defines as something obtained for value and competition among private parties and it generally is a transaction that where the borrower purchased his own debt from lenders. Um, that 2020 transaction was so controversial because the purchases were not offered to all lenders, were conducted via uh, debt exchanges, and were, were not purchases for cash. So in early April, uh, the bankruptcy court granted summary judgment to CERDA, finding that the term open market purchase was not ambiguous and that uh, the transaction fell within sort of the parameters of what an open market purchase is. That litigation is now on direct appeal to the Fifth Circuit, so skipping the district, the district court where it normally would go first. Um, as for confirmation, uh, the court was left to address not only confirmation issues, it's just a little bit more on this later, particularly the indemnity provision included um, in the plan, but also claims for breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing that was again relating to the 2020 transaction. So starting with the, la with the latter, uh, New York law implies that this covenant of good faith and fair dealing in uh, in every contract, basically. And in ruling in favor of CERDA on June 6, uh, it does appear that the fact that this non-participating lenders uh, the fact that they were aware that this 2016 credit agreement was, according to Judge Jones, quote unquote, a loose document, uh, that weighed heavily on the court. Um, the opinion goes to note that the objecting lenders acquired the majority of their holding long after the original issuance and did so in anticipation of negotiating and executing their, their own up to transaction, um, excluding the PTI lenders that were the uh, that uh, that were the, uh, the the participating lenders ultimately in CERDA. So uh, these objecting lenders, according to Judge Jones, it seems that were uh, it it was important that they themselves were trying to do exactly what uh, they ultimately complained was being done to them. Um, the other key dispute and confirmation, quite interesting, was actually was this go forward indemnity obligations. Um, that uh, CERDA included to protect those lenders participating in the transaction from legal liability moving forward. The court did grant approval of the provision as well. Uh, generally speaking, claims arising from pre-petition indemnity aren't allowable. Uh, so such, and such liability is important here because, as I said, 
the appeal of the summary judgment decision is now pending at the Fifth Circuit, and that could potentially give rise to liability if the court, if the Fifth Circuit reverses the bankruptcy court decision. That said, it's not surprising that the court approved the go-forward indemnity obligations here because it effectively viewed them uh, as value provided in exchange for the settlement for the overall plan and deemed it necessary. So yes, ultimately, Serda would be better off without such obligations. Nobody could disagree with that, but um, it, it obviously weighed heavily on the court that the, the, the company did manage to secure a $1.6 billion deleveraging plan. Um, that's what we always so, so, just looking at the Fifth Circuit now. And so where where are we in terms of the total timeline here? Is this something where we expect some, you know, do we have something in the dock here? Is this a relatively quick resolution or do we think there's a, some big fights yet to come? So uh, the fight will be centered at the Fifth Circuit, the challenge to the bankruptcy court position. Uh, as far as the bankruptcy court is effectively done, it approved the confirmation um, and uh, is just looking to the Fifth Circuit. Now, what's interesting is that it's, uh, while Serda is one of this first appearing transaction and provides law in an area where there's really been very little law, there's a lot of talk, um, it's, it's, this decision is perhaps especially important now because Judge Jones, and probably not by accident, will now get to oversee and ultimately decide, most likely, another up-tier transaction in Encora. Uh, Encora filed for bankruptcy on June 1st. You, you did your own segue there. I don't even have to uh, interject to uh, bring it, it in the felt news. right. <laughs> I'm just going to go get a coffee. You, you go ahead. So, uh, Incora, I mean, I, I'll be brief on Incora because we're just starting there, but it, it, it also hinges on the resolution of two adversary proceedings. Um, they're pending in New York state courts, challenging an up to transaction that's quite similar to the one in Serta. Um, Incora did succeed having those disputes addressed in Texas bankruptcy court. Um, and having uh, the same day, actually, with John Jones issued the uh, ruling in Serda. Uh, I, we'll have time, I think, to talk about in Cora. Judge Jones is not going to rush this ruling. Uh, I do want to note, though, that there are differences here. We're not looking at the same transactions as Serda. Uh, one of the suits in Cora is against Platinum, um, which is the company's private equity owner. So there's a, there's difference there. The, nat- the nature of the debt document is also different. Inquiry involves notes, not loans. So there are differences in the set of restrictions in this in this agreement. Uh, we're not dealing with open market purchases in Inquiry, for example. So there's that there's that component of it. Um, as far as sort of the, the basic case goes, as far as the filing goes, just briefly, it gained uh, the company gained interim approval the same day of the filing to use 110 million out of 300 million in uh, bankruptcy financing provided by the first lien lenders, so the same lenders whose claim priority is being challenged via this adversary uh, proceedings. Um, the dip um, seemed pretty uncontroversial, is junior to their ABL uh, facility out, that's outstanding doesn't require roll-ups, so it was approved pretty promptly by the by the bankruptcy court. But that's long, that's at the very beginning of the case. So let's maybe change gears a little bit, uh, uh, not least of which because the uh, last couple of weeks have been pretty active in the news 
for our friends in the uh, crypto space, right? I mean, with, uh, I guess, Binance and, and then uh, Coinbase being the target of the SEC a little bit. Uh, maybe update us on sort of the latest of what's going on with our friends at, uh, yes, FTX. I, I think we, many people maybe seem to have forgotten or, or you know, Sam Bacon freed in that whole saga there, but uh, still still playing out in the courts, yeah? Yeah, so the, the, the key one that I probably want to talk about today is the uh, avoidance action that FTX is um, about to start initiating against Genesis. This is one of several avoidance actions, actually, by FTS seeking to claw back withdrawals or payments that were made before the bankruptcy filing. We find ourselves here with FTX and Genesis and all these crypto um, companies in this not-so-common scenario of a debtor versus a debtor dispute. Um, that's likely getting more and more common in crypto cases, given that not only on the number of bankruptcies in the space, but also how interconnected these bankruptcies are to each other, um, these companies are to each other. Um, so in this case, in this particular case, uh, the clawback action encompassed about $3.7 billion against Genesis and a little over $200 million against a Genesis non-debtor affiliate. So pretty large sums of money that would be very impactful in both bankruptcies, to say the least. Um, I want to be clear what procedurally are here. Uh, this came in in Genesis bankruptcy as a request by FTS to modify the automatic stay in order to pursue the litigation in its own bankruptcy court in Delaware as opposed to the New York court overseeing Genesis bankruptcy. So there's this sort of fights among where, which court should even oversee these proceedings first. Um, and that probably explains what there's uh, currently very limited information on these claims. Uh, even though the impact would be huge. Um, what's clear, however, is that uh, these are framed as preference claims, so uh, transfers assumed to have taken place within the 90-day period before the filing of bankruptcy. Though FTX hasn't really provided exact dates other than mention that the transfers took place sometime during the summer. Uh, all FTX, so to just go back to the basics here, all FTX entities filed for bankruptcy, with the exception of one, filed for bankruptcy in November 11, which would mean that any payment made after August 13 could be subject to preference actions. So transfers made before then likely wouldn't be. Um, this isn't an easy undertaking by FTX. Kind of that's what I want to end saying about this. I think Genesis' primary defense here will be the so-called ordinary course of business defense. Uh, whether or not these payments or transfers were made in the ordinary course of business will likely depend, at least in part, on general payment practices for the cryptocurrency exchanges. And we haven't heard from these parties explain that and get into all the detail. Um, I think moving forward, we'll we have already seen Genesis push back on this claim. It's actually filed a parallel estimation proceeding in its own bankruptcy court, seeking to declare FTX's claim totally worthless, so valuing it at $0. So that proceeding alongside FTX's claim at uh, own proceeding sort of will shed some light into Genesis defenses moving forward later this month. Very interesting. Uh, never, never uh, shy for interesting things to talk about in that universe. Um, maybe changing gears a little bit once again, uh, Phil, let's bring you back in the conversation here. I know, uh, you know, we used to hear a lot about diamond hands. 
But now we're talking about Diamond Sports. Uh, what's the latest in our friends? I mean, baseball season's well underway. I, I think we've seen a couple of headlines here and there about some of the teams uh, trying to figure things out in terms of how that bankruptcy is playing out. But uh, maybe give us the latest there. Sure, no. Um, yeah, no, Diamond Sports last week had uh, some really interesting hearings, uh, and it, it centered around uh, the sports right payments to the Major League Baseball teams that haven't been made recently. At least one of those teams is the Rangers. Uh, the Twins also aren't receiving payment. And the the, the dispute before uh, Judge Christopher Lopez in uh, the Southern District of Texas, you'll note that's a very popular place uh, this time of year and probably for bankruptcy generally. Um, but the, uh, the dispute was really around uh, the company debtor, debtors here are saying um, we're not, you know, we're liquidity strapped, even though they're sitting on a lot of cash. Um, and so we don't want to necessarily pay uh, for these contracts, but they're using, they're broadcasting the, the shows. And so it's really post petition, what should the rate be paid? Um, the debtors are saying that the fair market value uh, for these rights is well below what the contract has. And, uh, you know, obviously the Major League Baseball teams are saying that the contract's the contract. Um, and the, I mean, the legal arguments are the, the contract rate is presumptive, um, you know, that they should be paying that. Uh, and unless the debtors can show evidence that uh, it's, it's, not fair market value. And although there was significant uh, testimony from like their expert, Leo Hendry, um, you know, that it was above market, uh, the, you know, these contract rates, um, you know, Judge Christopher Lopez ultimately said, uh, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, ultimately the, the arguments were unpersuasive and, you know, the con you know, they have to pay the contract rate post petition. And just a little background here. Um, you know, one of the chapter 11 powers is that, you know, for debtors is that you can reject a contract and, or you can assume a contract. Um, but what you can't do is just modify a contract. And so in this post petition arena, before you assume or reject the contract, um, that's where this dispute really, uh, lies. And, uh, and so now we have an answer to that before prior, they were paying 50%, then it moved up to 75%. Now they're paying uh, a full rate, full freight for, um, for the uh, uh, rights. Now, the most interesting thing from my perspective was the testimony of uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred, um, because he gave a lot of history in, in sort of you know, his, 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 uh, the, the team, the, the league's negotiations with Diamond in, uh, in court. And, you know, what's really interesting is when, recall that in 2019, Disney sold these networks, these RSNs, and, um, Major League Baseball was a bidder. And they, in fact, they bid $9.6 billion, uh, with Liberty Media, um, uh, for uh, these RSNs. And, you know, the root of that bid, which he made clear, was always defensive in nature. The, they didn't have a natural desire to be in this space, but they feared PE owning it and loading it with significant amounts of debt. 
Now, all of those fears played out, and it looked like their crystal ball was pretty accurate because uh, Sinclair basically loaded it up with debt, provided no parental support to speak of, and they did what, you know, a lot of the PE sponsors that we're familiar with do. They made the investment and then immediately took money out of it, um, specifically, you know, as they, as uh, um, David Chairman David Smith said, according to uh, Commissioner Manfred in the meeting, uh, you know, we put two billion in and we're taking a billion out. And and uh, and then they had a very unpleasant conversation in which uh, Commissioner Manfred said, we're not going to be providing you certain DTC rights. And uh, and Chairman David Smith uh, came back with, well, we're going to squeeze you guys on deals and potentially put your companies into bankruptcy. Uh, so. Uh, Anyway, long story short, what have we learned from all of this? So that that was always very interesting. And just the fact that Major League Baseball has built up this media presence within their own organization is the root of all of these maneuvers has been defensive, that they've been, you know, kind of preparing for this squeeze that um, uh, on their R, you know, that the RSNs would put on their Major League Baseball teams. And uh and so we're in the scenario that they, you know, sort of feared. And what's interesting now is that, um, you know, they're 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 going to get their full payments. Um, but we look at what was what was Major League Baseball worried about? Well, they were worried about the debt. And so now we have a bankruptcy proceeding where the debt's going to get called. Uh, dramatically, uh, you know, the the plan of reorganization has the debt at um, Diamond going from like eight or nine billion down to probably just about a billion. So that part should be appealing to Major League Baseball. Um, they clearly had problems with Sinclair after all these discussions, um, as as was pointed out into the in the courtroom. Uh, you know, they pointed at. The uh, new CEO David Preshlak and said that that's not David Smith over there. Um, you know, you're dealing with uh, a different organization at this point, and that's that's really true. Um, you know, Sinclair's ownership stake in Diamond, if there is going to be any, will be uh, incredibly small. And then, so, so where do we where do we go with this though? I mean, is is this still where Diamond comes out? They emerge. They still sort of have the assets, and they're just thinner. Or is this something where we still see this asset getting split up or sold off? Or is there a sense of of which direction this is heading? Because it sounds like maybe MLB is still interested in this. I mean, maybe they can auction off a couple of PSA uh, ten rookie cards and put up the cash for it or something. Given how hot the uh, <laughs> the collectibles market is right now. Well, th- 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 and that's really where I was going, is that a lot of the problems that Major League Baseball had with Sinclair's ownership are uh, behind them. Um, and-, and so finally, you know, to the extent that Major League Baseball is willing to bring all this in-house, and they actually put forth a bid for um, their sports rights uh, that was dismissed. I mean, there was an exchange of term sheets that really didn't get any traction with either side. But ultimately, I came out more optimistic on the chances that Major League Baseball and um, the creditors and Diamond Sports could uh, 
arrive at some sort of equity split here um, and, you know, with compensation also, obviously, for these rights, maybe a more of a mix of uh, a variable uh, revenue stream based on advertising and subscribers versus, uh, you know, in addition to some sort of minimum fixed uh, stream to the to the baseball teams. And uh, I, I think that's probably where this will go if nobody you know, that that's barring that, you know, these marquee assets don't just get an attractive bid from, you know, uh, one of the large media players, which really doesn't seem to be coming anymore. So uh, I, I do. I. So it was a, it was really interesting to hear. And, you know, for, for me, it was like we were I was looking at uh, a page that had a lot of connected dots, but uh, this this provided a lot of color to fill in um, that really was missing. And I, I think it really does. A lot make of uh, inside baseball, as they say. But I'm pumped. All right. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's a good place to end it. I, I would just say that the one last thing was uh, Sinclair was called out significantly, if I didn't like make the yeah, point no, already. I, I, with I think they, yeah. Okay. That made sense. Um, so let's pivot now back to you, uh, uh, Nagis. Uh, uh, Jay and Jay, uh, they finally filed a plan, or what are we what are we doing over there? They did. So on May 15th, LTL filed this Chapter 11 plan, setting up the framework for distributing 12.8 billion dollars over 25 years. That uh, purports to resolve all present and future uh, PAC liability. Until then, there had been no indication as to how the money would be distributed among the different types of claimants. We talked primarily about talk victims and rightfully so. There's a clearly the largest group. But there are governmental claimants here, for example, too, and the plan provided for the creation of two subtrusts, one for talk related claims, the other for governmental unit claims. Um, so uh, we, we get a better idea now. Perhaps more importantly, though, we saw for the first time how the company contemplated a division of funding between present and future claimants. Specifically, there seems to be $5.9 billion amount that will be funded for the first year of the plans uh, after following the plan's effective date. And uh, that's the period during which LTL um, purports to pay all current TAL claims. I do su suspect that there may be issues here, and uh, probably even those law firms representing maybe around 60,000 claimants may be unhappy with that $5.9 billion amount. Um, though I also do think that there is uh, likely room for negotiation um, on perhaps a lot of elements of this plan, in particular with, with respect to the amount dedicated to pay the current claims. Obviously, LTL absolutely needs the support of uh, those 60,000 claimants, and uh, obviously they're trying to get more. Um, this has been one of the most litigious cases, so there's something always happening here. But um, in the interest of time, I'd point to a few things to be on the lookout for the month of June um, for those following it in the court. I think a very important date is June. It's a hearing that takes place on June 13th that will be uh, one on the extension of a preliminary injunction, but also on the termination of exclusive exclusivity so to potentially giving the TAL claimants committee the right to file its own plan. The court encouraged this filing in a hearing in May, so it will be interesting. That plan is obviously going to look very different from the one 
that LTL files. So it will be interesting to see if the court wants to open the discussion and uh, terminate exclusivity, and we'll know that in June, most likely. Really interesting to keep uh, monitoring how that plays out. Uh, let's, uh, in mindful of time here, let's finally uh, sort of roll up with our friends over at Cineworld. Uh, and it sounds like maybe we've got a deal there or a national ad deal uh, that could have some impacts across the sector. Uh, Nagisa, can you walk us through that? Yeah, so it, it did, a deal was reached in May. It was, it was uh, filed with the court um, in beginning of June. And its prospect technically hang on national's ability to assume its existing contracts with AMC and Cinemark. Uh, it it won't survive unless national convinces its own bankruptcy judge, again, Judge David Jones, that we talked about, Sarah Diane and Cora, uh, who's uh, overseeing its Chapter 11 case that the new contract shouldn't result in the same modifications to those advertising arrangements that national has with AMC and Cinemark. That issue originates from the most favored nations provision that requires all three parties to get the same terms when it's modified. So National is arguing that these MFM clause aren't triggered in this case because the new deal with Regal doesn't constitute a modification of the original contract. Uh, it's, it's a tough argument maybe in many scenarios, but I do think National could succeed here um, because uh it's it's spoken a lot about what it would mean if it doesn't. It would not just affect its profitability, but it would terminate its restructuring support agreement. It has said that it could ultimately result in the company's liquidation. So I think the court may be mindful of that impact um, if it uh, doesn't rule in nationals. Uh, in national favor. I mean, obviously, AMC and Cinemark would have to object first that we do have uh, some steps there for it to happen, but that's where we are. Fascinating. So lots going on, certainly across the world of uh, bankruptcy and uh, distress, which is all the more reason to make sure that you dial in monthly to the State of Distress Step podcast because we'll keep you up. But with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap our June edition uh, with special thanks once again uh, to Matt Cantor, as well as Nagisa and Phil, on behalf of all of us, uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again in July.